Chandra, how are you today? I am wonderful, John. How are you? Great to be here. Yeah, likewise. This is uh, it's fantastic. I'm so happy to have the queen of manufacturing on the show. <laughs> well, I am so happy to talk to your audience about my favorite subject. And that's manufacturing for sure. It is. It's something that I don't think gets talked about enough. So I'm super excited to be doing this because I think there is so much happening in this space. It's amazing. So you've been working on manufacturing issues for a while. You've been in government at the U.S. Department of Commerce, and you've been in private sector, and, and now you work for MXD. I'm kind of curious, what brought you into manufacturing? Yeah, you know, it's a great question because I think one of my jobs is hopefully to be inspiring the next generation of folks and particularly women and other diverse sectors, which we need more of desperately in the manufacturing space. And I have to be honest, um, you know, I wish I could say I grew up and I knew I was going to be the queen of manufacturing and that was my life ambition. But, you know, it wasn't that way. Um, I kind of fell into it and fell in love with it in my 20s, actually. You know, you don't know all the different jobs and, and things that are out there. And I realized I'm one of those kind of tactile people, right? I like to see something. I like to feel it. I want it to be built. So as much as I love, you know, and it's funny because I run a digital manufacturing institute now, which a lot is unseen, but I was always really moved by the process of designing something and then seeing that vision come to life. So, you know, in my past, I've built everything from boats, you know, to bridges, to streetcars, right? And I can tell you, there's nothing more exciting than the design. We design a streetcar and then you build it and then you get to ride on it. Like, I mean, it's the full circle really of life. And so I personally find that really fulfilling. Well, I can understand that. It took me a while to fully realize the fascination here. And I'm sorry to say, it seems like young people around the world haven't really found this to be true yet. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's ex one is exposure. It's so incredible, the factory floors of today, right? You know, I was in metal manufacturing, so we did have, you know, welding and fitting, but people have the kind of illusion that all manufacturing is dark and difficult. And, oh my gosh, when you look at the factories of today, you know, with the use of robots and design and, you know, some of them are light and airy, there's, there's so much going on and manufacturing involves so much. Again, I don't think people realize the scope of what manufacturing jobs encompass. So one of my favorite things is we have Manufacturing Day each year in October, and I love it when these local businesses, you know, not just the large companies, but we open their doors and show the community, look what's being built in your backyard. Look at these mom and pop shops, for example, and look at the incredible things that they are making, the products that you care about that are, you know, in everyday life. So that is something I think we need to do more of is this educating and letting people know it's a great way to make a living. And General, in the past, as you probably know, manufacturing was one of the main paths to the middle class. You know, they are well-paying jobs and they were jobs sometimes you didn't have to get a degree and go into debt for. You can immediately go into the workforce and start making enough money to raise a family, to buy a home. And I think those are all still important pieces of this manufacturing puzzle. Yeah, and we'll get back to this uh, in a little while when we talk about what's sort of in the future here, because I wonder really how long it's going to take for people to realize that there's actually 
a new golden age, you know, kind of brewing here, which arguably is going to be that again, in a way. But let's go to your institute and, and what you're up to with educating and collaborating all across the United States with a bunch of partners. How did this institute get started? It's one of the basically endorsed institutes of the, of the government. T- tell us a little bit about the origin and then wh- where are you today? What are the exciting projects that you are undertaking right now? Absolutely. So being the CEO of MXD, and it's M, really M times D, it stands for Manufacturing Times Digital. It is a nonprofit public-private partnership. And for me, it's just so exciting because most of my career was in the private sector, right, as the CEO of working at Oregon Ironworks and the CEO of United Streetcar. And then, as you mentioned, I went into the public side. I worked for the federal government, the one I like to say is the largest bureaucracy (laughs) in the world. Very, very different. I was the deputy assistant secretary for manufacturing and commerce. And that was great. I learned so much about scale and the importance of the government. And then this job is really bringing that together, the public side and the private side, with really one main mission in mind. We want to be the place where innovative manufacturers, like they go to forge their future. And we're really trying to equip U.S. factories with all the things they need, the digital tools, the cybersecurity, the workforce expertise. We want them to be able to build every part better than the last and be able to do it using the digital tools and and the future of where industry 4.0, the industrial revolution we all like to talk about is going. So it's a fantastic job. You know, I love what I do. And to talk a little bit about the history, a long time ago, I sat there, um, there was a U.S. Manufacturing Council and the U.S. Manufacturing Council and so many other stakeholders, all these people came together and they looked at what in the United States is missing. How are we upgrading and uplifting this manufacturing base? And this is before, I will add, the pandemic, I think, has made everyone a lot more knowledgeable about the importance of manufacturing, and especially locally, and especially with the supply chain issues, right? So I feel we're much more empowered now. And these days, people weren't talking about it as much, you know, a decade ago, right? And they looked at what was being done on the international stage. So there's some great models, Fraunhofer in Germany, things that were being done in the UK and Singapore. And the U.S. really hasn't done as much on the public-private partnership side. So this idea was built that that's one of the ways that we can help the manufacturing community here. And that's kind of the inception, if you will, of these manufacturing institutes. Yeah. And then what happened was that these institutes grew up and and each has kind of a different profile. So was it clear from the outset that digital, and also I understand there's a very big kind of shop floor that you have a very big exhibition space. So a lot of it is, is bringing people together. Was that at the outset what your institute was charged with? So it was basically a competition, right? So nothing is set, uh, you know, anything we do with the government is ultimately competed. So I can't say that there was like the absolute blueprint of this is how you're going to do it. In fact, all the institutes are actually fairly different. Right now, we've, we've grown. We were the second institute. The first one was Additive Manufacturing, America Makes in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, we were the second. Now there's 16 of these. They're called Manufacturing really Innovation Institutes across the United States. Each of us has a really unique topic. 
There's everything from robotics to biomaterials, energy. And, and actually, I want to call that out. That's actually another big difference between the Institute. Some are sponsored by Department of Defense. The majority are. But there are several Department of Energy-sponsored manufacturing institutes and one at Commerce. The Department of Commerce has one manufacturing. So if you think about it, even with our sponsoring agencies, it sets you up differently, you know, contractually and otherwise. The DOE Institute's probably are a little more heavy on pure research. The DOD ones as a large consumer, right, of, of products is farther along on the a very applied R&D. But we're all similar, right? We all have the same mission, um, but each of us has a different topic. Obviously, I'm biased, right? So I would say that my topic is the most important one. I will say it sometimes it's difficult because we're probably the broadest. You know, if you think about additive materials or composites, right? Or something specific, lightweight metals is one of the institutes. That's pretty specific. Like, you know what you're doing. The digital space is huge, right? So we are taking on a lot, but I think it's absolutely critical to the future of manufacturing. So I think that's a big difference. And I will add just one other point in here that we've got recently designated as the National Center for Cybersecurity and Manufacturing by DOD. So when you talk about this digital space, we all realize all this data moving around, we also have to secure that. So now we have kind of another mission on top, which is a very important one as well, which is securing the data and the manufacturing base. So tell me a little then about some of the projects, because I, I think you have something like 85 R&D projects going on almost all across America. Mm-hmm. There's about 300 partners for this type of activity. Give me some examples of, of these research projects. So you said cybersecurity. What are some of the areas that uh, really is a, a big focal point this year or the coming years? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question, because it's really unique. This is a really cool thing about our model. And I would love, like, I want to reach everyone out there because we put over $120 million, right, out into the ecosystem in over 85 of these applied R&D projects, which include cyber and workforce and and regular, like whether it's AI. And I'm going to give you some examples and kind of explain. And also maybe how you can get a hold of some of those millions in the sense that I'm assuming (laughs) these partners don't just contribute for free. There's, I'm sure, a contribution they make, but there's also a a way to get some of that funding. So I'm curious, just give some examples of the kind of lighthouse projects that people have gotten involved with. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, we have members, you know, if you're a member, and if you're a small business, it's $500 to be a member at MXD. So, you know, very reasonable, right? We're trying, um, obviously, if you're a large or multinational, it's much higher fee. But we have mostly small businesses that are members. And then obviously, a, a bunch of the larger corporations are also members, you know, the Boeing's, the Rolls, but you know, we have Microsoft and AT&T and Siemens and There's a lot of companies that are in our ecosystem. And then we also have over, I think we're up to over like 40 universities, right? So that's the academic side. So I just want to describe an ideal project. And I'll give you a really specific example. And we put RFQs out. So we take in a whole bunch of data and we do a three-year, going hopefully sometime to five, strategic plan on where we're going to invest. So that's the start. We talk to all these manufacturers. What is your biggest problems? What are your most urgent needs? 
And we look at that and we put money, you know, money mostly that comes from DOD, the federal government, and we will put an RFQ out on our website. So it's open to the public. Anyone can go see. You can go there now and look and see what projects we're going to be funding. And usually we have around 30 active a year, right? So like different projects in different levels from scoping to actually putting it out. So the example I will give, like, what's the ideal project? And I'm really proud of this one. We did a supply chain risk alert. And this was started years ago before the pandemic. So again, we were we were very prescient, I guess. And I, I think it's continuing. You know, we have lots of phases in some of our projects as they move forward. So what this is, this project basically used all different sources of data, you know, weather data, risk data, transportation data, logistics, and it's using AI, artificial intelligence and algorithms. So you can get advanced notice of a supply chain disruption, right? So putting all these things together and using AI to help you predict, that's what we want. We don't want to react. We want to be proactive on this project. It was Microsoft, Dow, I think everyone knows Dow, the chemical company, Itamco, which is a small business in Indiana, and then two universities, Rochester Institute of Technology and Indiana University, Purdue uh, University, Annapolis. So, you know, you think about that. Here's two different universities. Here's Microsoft, here's Dow, a couple of big companies, a small company, and they all come together, you know, on this project that we fund. So, of course, they're contributing, you know, their time and their energy and they're a member. But, you know, we're funding this project. And what's great is we're getting these real life users, whether it's a small business, a Dow, the big business, they actually get to test it, to use it. Like that, that's part of the practical side. You know, we want most of the outcomes from our projects to really help impact the whole, you know, U.S. manufacturing chain. So the idea here is it's not just a research project. You take it a little further. You do a lot of testing as well. Absolutely. And that's why we have our fantastic, I love it, our future factory floor you mentioned before. It's a 22,000 square foot facility. And I like to say, yeah, what are we doing? We're making kind of the digital thread come alive and, and applications that from some of our own projects, you can see them on the floor. So we have, you know, old World War II equipment, right? And we can show you how you can retrofit, you know, a 60-year-old drill press. How can you make that digital? You can go there and see it. We can show you a mini assembly line and how we do it paperless. So again, for with low-cost solutions that people can implement as we try to get them to move along this digital path, you know, this is how it works. And sometimes it's using things like Xbox cameras, right? And, and lights and sounds and like videos that are portrayed right down in front of you. So it makes it easier for you to be able to build something. We have a cybersecurity wall in the factory, which I love. So we will hack ourselves, right? We don't want any small business. I mean, they're probably getting hacked enough, right? You can't disrupt your business sometimes when you're learning. So that's why we have this great space. You know, we're headquartered in Chicago. It's on Goose Island. And it's fantastic. People come in there and we show them, this is how you're going to be hacked. This is what happens if someone puts the USB port. This is how many vulnerabilities you have on a factory floor, which are thousands and thousands, much more than most people realize. So, you know, they get to see that, right? They get to see, you know, a Siemens digital twin and, and like how that works. We're right now starting up soon a 5G test bed. So, you know, you'll be able to test what's the different uses of 5G in the factory. So it's really great um, and it's inspiring. We have students come through, lots of students, but 
lots of companies, big businesses and small boards of directors that need to learn more about, you know, what's happening in Industry 4.0, the digital space, the cyberspace. So it's a big part of how, you know, we're educating and showcasing some of these future technologies. So then my my question, because I saw a statistic here, 12,000 guests a year, that was pre-pandemic. How has the pandemic been like? I mean, I'm assuming that you've shut down a lot of the physical activity for now. Are you basically just keeping the space warm for better times? And how have you sort of transitioned to a lot of digital activity? So actually, we're, we're open and we've pretty much been open. We are, you know, a DOD institute. And honestly, at the very beginning of the pandemic, we had our 3D printers and additive work, working, making um, face shields for local hospitals around the country. So we turned our resources. And again, I really want to give credit to the manufacturing community. People have already forgotten, you know, what happened at that time. We didn't have PPE. We scoured our own right factories for PPE. We donated them to hospitals and first responders. And so we at MXD were making face masks, right? Like, you know, immediately. So it became an actual factory instead of a demo floor. Yeah, in a small scale. I mean, again, we converted what we could. So we do have printers and other things. So we used everything that we had, you know, to help do our part, if you will. But yeah, we we're not in general, we're not to, obviously a working active factory, you know, kicking out tens of thousands of parts and pieces. But the team was was doing that work. And again, as a digital institute, it really actually was pretty seamless for us. We already did a lot of webinars. Again, it's funny because now everybody does it. But like at the time, we had already done, you know, webinars. We had a lot of technology, the ability for our team to work remote was already in place, but we just kicked it up a whole nother notch, I guess. In fact, we did a whole virtual tour that you can go into kind of a 3D experience on our website. That was a big thing we did during the pandemic since people weren't able to visit as much in person. We also did a ton of lessons learned for the community. Again, I like to practice what I preach, right? Lead by example. So we set up a really state-of-the-art when you come in, you know, especially at the time you had the temperature, you know, gauges that would monitor you, we made sure the airflow was good. We changed, we have partitions, you know, in between the social distancing. There was a lot of investment. So I'm pretty proud, like to date, I don't believe we had a single transmission of COVID at MXD. And of course, you know, we give our team the most amount of flexibility, meaning, you know, immediately, not that many people are required to be in the office. That's a a handful of people, but we leave it up to them. It's it's a choice issue if they want to come in. And and as you know, probably some people with challenging times at home with lots of kids and things, it's a safe space where they can come and work and, you know, have coffee. But at the same time, many of our people stayed home, you know, and completely stayed home and can work fully remote, especially, you know, we really want to take care of people that have childcare issues and health issues. And so I'm proud to say that we do a hundred percent flexible working at MXD. Jennifer, I'm just curious. So you have a pretty large team, meaning, you know, when you say a project, there's a project manager, there's almost like a team around the project. So they're not just sort of setting up calls. They're actually pretty active in, in shaping these projects. Yep. Again, I hesitate, like all the projects are so different, Tron. Like, so let me give you another example of one, just because I think it's, this is important. Let's talk about a workforce one. So you're right. The team, we have project managers and we have engineers, and sometimes we're actually making things like a cyber box that we're going to demonstrate on the floor. Right. So, but every project is different. Some projects are reports, right. Or guides to help other companies. So there's all sorts of different types of projects. 
One that I love is the jobs taxonomy. So talk about workforce. You know, I'm a big person. You have to define something and then you can figure out how to fix it. We have a huge pipeline issue. Everybody talks about this. And as an ex-person in the, the metals business, it was welders, right? And machinists and fitters. And we still have that need. So that has not gone away. But at MXD, I always talk to people, we're focused more on the future pipeline that, that we don't want to have that same problem. We're trying to get to it in advance, be, again, a little more proactive. The need for the digital technology in manufacturing and cyber trained workforce is growing exponentially. And so this digital revolution, if really what it is, it's creating so many attractive, like well-paying jobs really for the next gen of manufacturing workers. So one of the things that we've done is this jobs taxonomy, right? So MXD and Manpower Group, you know, a great company that's done a ton of work in this area. We released a digital workforce taxonomy, and I would, I would say it's actually groundbreaking what we did, and, and analyzed 165 new data-centric manufacturing jobs, right? And what does that mean? Well, let's be, let's be simple, right? It's roles like a collaborative robotics technician, a predictive maintenance system specialist. Another one that I always use an example, a digital ethicist. Like whose companies are thinking that you're going to need this? So like, right? So, you know, we have to talk about these roles and we have a workforce playbook. It includes job role descriptions, the educational requirements for each role. Universities have started to use this to inform curriculum development. Dow, I mentioned them before, one of our partners, they use it when they staffed their digital operations center. So people like think about a small business could just come there and take out a job description or get help with that. So that's something I'm, I'm really proud of. And honestly, it's out for free. You don't have to be a member to get this. You know, again, we, we want to help everyone become educated and help this pipeline. So it's on our website, www.mxdusa.org. You can go there. It's really awesome. Um, there's a cybersecurity hiring guide, too, because, again, that's the next thing coming. And we continue to expand on these, you know, as we move forward. Can you enlighten me a little bit on how these projects get started, Chandra? Because you mentioned that the funding initially is from the government, but also the funding that you then disperse through these projects. There must be a combination then of you trying to set some sort of direction for the kinds of projects, but then I'm assuming people have to kind of apply in, in more of a government-style sort of bidding mm -hmm. process. Is that how it, how it works? You, you create these programs and then people bid for various sub-projects under these broad guidelines. Am I getting this right? Yeah, that's very close. When I talked about our strategic investment plan, so again, people can see we have we usually have an executive summary again open to the public. We're talking about the areas we're going to be investing in over the next three years. And that's based on the need of the community, the solution providers, the manufacturers, them coming together and saying, these are my problems, these are my issues. You know, this is the things that we need help on. So there's a lot of data input, you know, that creates this investment plan. And then obviously, yeah, we kind of bucket it right in different areas and maybe even put down some kind of ideas of what we want, whether it's an AI solution, something about predictive maintenance, what are the workforce issues that we want to be working on. I don't actually know the number off the top of my head. I think there may be 70 projects listed in the strategic investment plan. It keeps growing, right? And so will all of those get funded? No, but you know, we'll start working through those. So one, if you read that, you'll have a heads up. So there might be a group in supply chain, right? A whole bunch of different supply chain projects. There's a whole bunch of cybersecurity projects. There's a whole bunch of workforce projects. 
as we get different fundings, you know, we start doing those. And then the process in general is through, like as I said, we put our RFPs, our RFQs like out on the website. And obviously we notify all of our members, you know, of these opportunities because they arise, they could be arising like every month, kind of a different one or a different type, but they're not all the same, obviously. And so different people are interested and normally our members kind of form teams and then they'll apply. You see, that's interesting because, you know, in, in a sense, you kind of have to have a network already, you know, to sort of apply. I was curious about that because you said, you know, academia, I understand. So you have, you know, universities and they are used to this sort of process. And then large companies, some are better than others. But, you know, if you have an office that deals with this or they're used to applying for funding, they at least have the structures theoretically to pull this off. Small and medium-sized enterprises, I'm guessing, is harder right? Especially if they're not members. I, I don't understand how they could sort of see these opportunities fast enough. And then I was curious about another group, startups, like tech startups. Do you have those actors also coming into your projects? Yeah, we do. I would say probably not as high a penetration with the startups, usually because they're really focused on their product. And as I think you know, I've helped uh, advise and mentor some startups and man, they are working and working so hard at getting that done. So we definitely have startups in our community, but not probably as many as some of the other, you know, more traditional ones who know what they need. But what I would say is how they come together. It's a full service shop. So let me, let me put it that way. How do we reach these people? How do they know? You know, we do so much convening. That's what public private partnerships do, right? So how can they form teams? How would they even know, right? What's great is, you know, in fact, we just did our first in-person event in 2022 that was on electric vehicles. Right. And so we're bringing together, there was people from the government there, there's people from most of the major OEMs, you know, in the electric vehicle space, charging station people, software people. And we bring these people together. We have a really gorgeous big facility, lots of meeting rooms and spaces as well. So besides the floor, this is an addition to that, right? We have this great meeting space. So we will host these things and we will host workshops when we can talk about and, and start almost scoping out, like, what are these projects? What's the idea of the projects? What's the goals that we want to reach? So, you know, people there are meeting other people and talking to them and, you know, kind of seeing who has different areas. And obviously of all of our members, we have a big database and it talks about, you know, who does what, and we will help facilitate that meeting and greeting. Cause you can't just yeah, do it on their own. Like that'd be really hard. So we do a lot of events and things where that can come together and a lot of content, the webinars, other things where you can meet people. That's a good point. I mean, I do get a bunch of emails from various government programs where they're saying, you know, just apply, but unless you have the context around which, you know, is this going to be worth it for me? Do I have any chance? Like, do I know anyone to apply with? How do I create a project? Like there's a lot of context that I'm assuming in any program you need, because otherwise you just don't know if, is this a real opportunity? Do we have a chance here? So kudos to you for bringing people together. I wanted to move, Chandra, a little bit to the future of manufacturing. You alluded to some challenges. First off, it seems like all of these manufacturing institutes were really addressing a deficit at the U.S. policy level, right? There was this recognition, I guess, that other actors, Germany, for example, historically has done a pretty decent job with their manufacturing business, they have supported them in a very structured way. And then there are some Asian economies that also have done quite a bit. As we move into sort of future manufacturing and, and the U.S. has all these institutes and technology, obviously, is a strength in the U.S. with, you know, you mentioned robotics. There's all kinds of sort of augmented work practices. 
Where are we heading here as an economy, you know, with the manufacturing in the U.S.? And what are some of the things that can be addressed by some of the things that are evolving? So, for example, this workforce challenge, do you think it's going to go away eventually? Because, you know, it's a communication challenge. But if you just open your eyes, these factories are demonstrably getting more interesting. You're not just saying this. They are interesting. So eventually someone's going to say, there's got to be an equilibrium here. Like, when will people realize and when will this kind of sea change start to happen where people start coming back to this sector? So talking about the future, I think the the first thing we have to talk about is the huge issue that the pandemic has done, right? Like, so a lot of what I would have predicted, I have to be honest, I think no one understood what was going to happen here, the scope. And it's a huge impact on the manufacturers, just as much, I know it's an impact to you know the restaurants and the service industry as well. But think about these manufacturers who are dealing with it. You know, right now, you look at everything from you know people that are making the planes. You know, and you're United, and how many people are out, and it's just been a really huge issue. So that has changed a lot of things. And the good news is, kind of to your point, when we talk about perception and when you talk about workforce and kind of getting into an equilibrium, I think we're far from that. But I, I like that as a goal. <laughs> to get to in the future, because the reality is the the pandemic has made people more aware, you know, never has a toilet paper shortage made people want to know where are my toilet paper rolls made? How close are they to me? Can I go there and like get some, you know, that's a huge change. How many people really thought about the supply of where their toilet paper comes from? They did it. Yeah, I have to admit that even, you know, having studied just in time production principles and, you know, all of these very abstract things in in various stages of my career, suddenly this is for real. Well, turns out just in time could be a real big issue. It's huge. And there's like a lot of good news here. Like besides that, the the populace is paying attention, which I love because I've always been passionate about this for many, many years, decades and decades now. But um, it's great to see it getting kind of looked at by the general public. And this pandemic exposed like the fragility, right, of these supply chains. And for manufacturers, it's shown that it's an opaque system, right? Like they don't know where all their parts are coming from. And people don't realize the sub-tiers of the sub-tiers of the sub-tiers for want of a nail, right? You know, they have that story that the horseshoe was lost and the war was lost. I mean, it's incredible. Like if you drive down to like, and, and the United States 85% plus is made up of small manufacturers, you know, under 50, under 60, and and many, many are under 10 people, right? They are making the products that go into all the other, you know, bigger products, whether it's an automobile that you drive or a stove that you cook on. So I think that this whole supply chain issue has really come to the forefront. And, you know, that's why I said, like our supply chain risk alert, right? And some of the things that we're doing, I think it's that's a good thing. This is a good thing. We needed to look at this more holistically. We needed to understand where things come from. We need to understand you know, critical materials. I think a lot of people's eyes have been opened. So this is good. And I think this is going to change things again when we talk about where are people going and, and what are they going to do. I would also say the other key issue coming out of the pandemic has been like the increased speed of adoption of digital. Right. Who knew, again, just being really simplistic, that we would all be experts at Zoom, Teams, uh, GoToMeetings, and cats. Like, it's incredible and in how much time we would be spending in front of a camera looking at ourselves all day long, right? 
So this is a huge change. Like people have adopted digital that, you know, most companies wouldn't have thought that their workforce could go remote, right? So quickly or still be working remote, my goodness, two years later, no one expected this. So, you know, for us, because we think that moving along the digital space and adopting more of these digital channels is going to make everyone more competitive, more resilient, you know, more visibility. So that's been, I say, another good thing when we talk about, you know, what's the future of manufacturing. I think that's another important area. On the workforce side, too, people are starting to see, like you said, there's so many cool things like, you know, you could be helping, you know, make the vaccines or the glass bottles that vaccines are in that are going to save the lives of hundreds of millions of people. What you do really has an impact. And and I think that's another great thing. And, And the pandemic shows this hybrid workforce can work, can be resilient, and you can even increase efficiency of your workers if you have, you know, the right infrastructure and stuff in place. What about the general sort of clip of innovation that for many years people have sort of said that, well, either the rhetoric is, you know, the manufacturing industry is just slow. They're just slow, those guys, or, you know, it's an industry that is not adopting innovation very fast. But others, maybe more informed perspective is it's just very complex because you have factories making physical things. The parts have to get there. And generally, you know, the innovation in the sector is complicated. You're talking about physical systems, but with this integration of digital and and then, you know, so one term is like cyber physical systems. Is there a chance now, given the pandemic, given this digital adoption, that the speed of innovation in manufacturing is going to pick up? not just because of the pandemic, but generally will we'll kind of have reached some sort of new clip that will make it even faster and surprise all of us with sort of new and exciting products. Is that possible? Or do you think that we're going to come back out of this and we're going to realize that the sorts of breakthroughs, I guess, that, that were happening were really just related to urgency of need and that the rest of the system just still has all of these efficiencies that we were worried about? So innovation is absolutely going to be moving along at a, a rapid pace. I mean, we're in, we're in a revolution, right? That's what revolution means, like the speed of change and what we can do with data is revolutionizing how things are from, you know, instant customization to all the efficiencies that you see. It's incredible to be able to predict, right, all these things, you know, quantum computing at that and 5G, the ability to do instantaneous communications. So, so much is changing. That is, that is the great news. The U.S. is the most innovative country in the world. It always has been. Like we do incredible things here um, and make new products and new applications, new software. It's, it's wonderful. That is going to continue. It is going to continue faster because for one thing, the people that aren't adopting digital and kind of making some of these changes are going to be falling behind. And the companies that are already doing it right are showing like how important that is. And so that is the future. I will say, though, my one note of caution, um, not all optimistic, that I absolutely believe. We're going to get more products and incredible innovations. They're going to come at a much faster pace than expected. It's going to be amazing. Like healthcare, you look at some of these things, what we've done in terms of medicine, how quickly vaccines, all that is changing and due a lot to data and moving this forward. On the other side, though, my concern is manufacturers are still slow to adopt 
So not to innovate, you know, to your point that I think, you know, we're pretty great at it's going quickly, but, you know, adopting these things, you know, there's expenses to them and we need the workforce that's trained to be able to do it and use it. Right. So, you know, adoption has always lagged. Manufacturing has definitely been behind financial, for example, right, in terms of its adoption of, you know, what's happening in the digital space. So on the good news side, I definitely see it picking up. I think that's what the statistics show is like people are adopting faster, you know, thanks to the pandemic. But I wouldn't say it's a revolutionary adoption. When you think of all these small, and that's one of the folks that we're actually trying to reach the most at MXD and help the most are the small and medium manufacturers who kind of need to be helped more. And what can we do, for example, on the cybersecurity problem? It's so critical. So we're about to roll out a cybersecurity marketplace on our website where, you know, anyone can go and small businesses can kind of do easy, simple self-assessments, easy, simple, you know, solutions for them. We have to make it easy for them as cost effective and as simple as easy for them to adopt these practices that are ultimately going to make them better and to do this investment. So that's a big focus of us going forward. So Chandra, you've been alluding to cybersecurity a few times. It seems like, at least for your institute, a, a massive priority. What are overall, apart from I've understood hiring, you know, it's new types of skill sets, especially in manufacturing. So applying not just digital, but digital into manufacturing and then the cybersecurity perspective. So you're securing physical systems that are, you know, they're just coming online and that's the new thing, which is wonderful. But then suddenly you get all of these new security challenges. What is sort of the agenda for cybersecurity and manufacturing in the years ahead? What are the elements that you will be working on? I would say uh, the start of the elements are so many. So, right, there's a lot of pieces here to break it down in some big groups. I would say, you know, one of the first things is, and I know this is surprising, but it's awareness, you know, the uplifting of what is the problem, how comprehensive is the problem. Unfortunately, when you look at the news, I think a lot of it is on the bigger issues. When the gas pipeline, right, is being anything with the energy infrastructure, you know, and most small businesses, they're not talking about the ransomware. That's not the story of the day, right? And there are lots of small businesses that have gone out of business due to cybersecurity issues, whether it's a hacking, whether it's a ransomware. I forget what some of the latest numbers I've seen, but it's shocking on how many small manufacturers in particular, because manufacturing, remember, one of the reasons why we care so much about it is it's the most targeted sector, you know, because if you think about it in terms of intellectual property, right, and I, I can't remember the last numbers, like 80% of international property comes from manufacturing companies, like that's who are creating, you know, these ideas and these innovations. So they're highly targeted. It's a highly targeted sector. And so that is like a step one, just making people aware, right, of that fact, especially on the small and medium-sized uh, businesses. But I would tell you, even our largest, all my multinational members, the big companies, they care about it too, because your vulnerability, you're as weak as your supply chain. We're doing a great project with Rolls-Royce and working with their supply chain on the cyber side, because again, even if the big companies have a lot of things wrapped in security or the Lockheed Martins of the world do a great job here, still, they have a supply chain issue that's going to be where their vulnerabilities come in at. So everybody cares about it. So, so that's one. Then I would say the next, after you increase awareness, 
you have to have two things, you know, once people understand the problem and you define it and they know it's there, which again, I'm telling you is still an issue (laughs) that has not been fixed. Then it's how are you actually fixing it? And that's a combination of people and technology, right? So the numbers are insane about how many cybersecurity experts are needed. And there's already, it's like a negative hiring right now, meaning already a deficit. So people thought the welding and fitters and machinists was going to be a deficit. I would say this is an even bigger looming deficit of people that are trained on the cyber side. In fact, that's one of our big things we're doing is, it's funny, you were just talking about it, like a cybersecurity for manufacturing operational technology. So very specific cybersecurity for the OT environment in a floor. We have a class in that. It's like the, one of the first program of its kind that we've rolled out uh, with some partners. And it's, it's a really incredible thing that we're trying to get more people educated on. But then it's also, as you said, like the technology and, you know, all these folks have to be almost every company needs to self-assess in some sense, figure out what they have, you know, what are the biggest vulnerabilities? Some things are easy, you know, everyone talks about multi-factor authentication, you know, MFA and the, the side, and that's not a difficult thing, you know, but how many people, even consumers are really using that and doing that? So I think there's there's so much that can be done. And, and I will add for anyone that's working with the federal government, you know, you might have heard DOD has, you know, been obviously very focused on this issue. It's very important to them as well. And they have a um, cybersecurity, they call it CMMC, Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. And that's in a few years going to be required for all DOD contracts, right? Because they're they're worried about this. They're worried about China. They're worried about the hacking Russians. So, you know, we know that this is coming. This is part of why we're doing our, our cyber marketplace and an assessment that will help you get prepared for CMMC and, you know, other requirements and standards that are going to start coming down the line for these manufacturers. So there's a lot going on in this space. So awareness, the people side, you must and the technology and having that keep up. Well, I'm seeing a, a common thread here. I don't know if you agree, but, you know, because when you st- talk about supply chain and the responsibility of the larger companies to their own supply chain and how they're sort of taking that seriously because it's an ecosystem and, you know, you're only as strong as the weakest link kind of a theory, that applies equally to cybersecurity generally, I guess, in manufacturing as it does to all of the supply chain issues, basically, you know, even just getting the products, but certainly securing them all along this process and and I guess it it applies to sort of transparency but I would assume that the workforce issue you're talking about which is keeping workers agile enough that they can pick up on all of these new skills and new processes that will have to be implemented in the coming months not years these are very interlinked challenges so cyber is a technology but it's also a workforce and training issue and supply chain you know seems like something we never really needed to think about. We just had a supply chain expert and, you know, you were buying certain things along the way that is now a strategic area for the company. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I think it's absolutely critical. And again, even when you look at cybersecurity, what is your number one vulnerability? It's the people. Like, how is the problem going to happen? It's through your workforce. So it's like both sides of the coin. It's not just that I need to educate workforce. It's like you need to educate all your workers because they're your primary um, vector path, if you will, for the first problem, right? Right. Who clicks on that phishing attack? You know, it's not even until it's a person. Well, yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's even the best of us that that do that. So lastly, I just wanted to end with, you know, what's like one of your biggest challenges that are still sort of ongoing and what is one of your biggest sort of expectations or hopes as we go into kind of this uh, 
hopefully, eventually a post-pandemic cycle of manufacturing? I think, you know, one of the biggest issues that, again, we continue to worry about is, you know, you can look at the pandemic as an opportunity, right? And so the challenge I always continue to talk about it that I, I worry about and I talk to my team about this all the time is, you know, speed, right? And, and that return on investment and how we can get more people moving down and adopting kind of more and how we get more low cost solutions, you know, in the hands of people faster, so I, I think there is a speed challenge, like the speed of innovation, right? Or is the speed of protection keeping up to it? Is the speed of production and efficiencies keeping up with it? That's a big concern. And that takes a whole ecosystem, like all of the village, right? Working together to try to fix that. So I'm always very concerned about that. In terms of the optimistic side, again, one of the great things, and I, I just think it, it's easy to, to forget about this, but I kind of alluded to it earlier, is that the way that manufacturers are collaborating these days, the fact that, you know, I think we're a little over six years old, right? Six, seven years old. And now there's 16 institutes, right? And we were two, and I'm not sure how many more there'll be, but the reality is that's a big change. And the fact that we're looking at collaborations, my huge talk about why I'm very bullish on public-private partnerships, and there's lots of great ones out there and lots of nonprofits doing incredible work, is one, you need the diversity. So you need to bring together diverse groups will give you more robust solutions faster, period. Like that's a that's been a proven thing. And so that's why I feel really passionate about like what we do and this bringing together of people in this ecosystem is because that's where I'm bullish. And you saw it when, all, again, going back to when manufacturers, just everybody, they, they never made PPE in their life. Like we're like, here's a secure face shield design, right? There's kids on their 3D printers who are printing out masks and stuff for people. I mean, that shows you the power of this community, right? When they come together, they will get to this. The, the speed that the vaccines were developed is incredible. So that's the very optimistic side I have is that when you collaborate, and this means, as I said, diversity, you have to have these diverse viewpoints coming together, we are going to get some really great solutions quicker. And that, I feel good about that. Well, it's a fascinating landscape that you operate in, Chandra. It's a wonderful thing to be bringing people together and innovating and contributing to the success of the United States as a manufacturing nation. So you have an exciting job. I do. Luckily, I love my job <laughs> and I have an incredible team. So it's not one person. It takes, you know, so many of us and all the institutes are doing great work. And thank you for highlighting us and letting us share our story because I, I wish it was out there more. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for coming on the show. I, I hope that we can, you know, in some small measure, at least spread the word to new folks that can get involved and contribute to your programs. Fantastic. I'd love it. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It was wonderful. Thanks.